This week, uh, as, as I spent time uh, preparing in the book of Zechariah, and there were two unique features of this book that stood out to me over and over and over again. The first is that the book of Zechariah is a long book. <laughs> in fact, it's the longest of the minor prophets by quite a bit. <clears throat> And there were a number of times throughout this book where I was wondering why Zechariah wasn't counted as a major prophet rather than a minor prophet. um, So that I wouldn't have to deal with all of this material on one particular Sunday. But the second aspect uh, which caught my attention was how many famous quotes and allusions and predictions from Zechariah are found repeated and fulfilled in the New Testament scriptures. In fact, just as Zechariah is the longest of all of the minor prophets, he is also the most quoted of all of the minor prophets by a long shot, being either quoted or alluded to on more than 70 different occasions throughout the New Testament. A majority of those are found in the various gospel accounts and in the book of Revelation, either dealing with God's promises of a coming Messiah or His promises of how He was going to work at the end of time. And as I considered those two realities, that this book is really long and that it is often quoted, I had two thoughts. The first is that this must be a really substantial and significant message, right? It's substantial in that there is a lot in this book. There's a lot of material to deal with. And it's significant uh, in that the writers of the New Testament thought it was important enough to quote over and over and over again. They they recognized that this message had profound implications, not just for Zechariah's time, but for their day as well. The second thought that I had was that as a result of those two things, uh, the size of this message and the substance of this message, that it was going to be nearly impossible to cover this book like we've covered all the rest of the Minor Prophets up to this point. There's simply too much material here to even begin to try to cover it all in a single sermon. And so this week we're going to engage this text in a a way that's a bit different than the way that we've engaged all of the other Minor Prophets up to this point. But rather than trying to do kind of the groundwork and cover all of the material that's in this book, instead we're going to climb the ladder. And take a look at the prophet Zechariah from kind of a 50,000 foot view, if you will. It's going to be a tall ladder that we get up on today. So we're going to, we're going to zoom way out and look, not at, not at many of the details of this story, but rather at just the overarching big picture uh, idea message of the book of Zechariah. And we're going to consider what that big picture means and how it applies to our lives Today, So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open it with me uh, to the book of Zechariah. And let's look together at the big picture view of the major message of this minor prophet. Now the setting and the background of the book of Zechariah uh, are literally exactly the same as they were last week when we looked at the book of Haggai. Now, these two men, they prophesied at the exact same time in the exact same place, to the exact same people. Literally, uh, they are within weeks of one another when they are prophesying. And so everything that I said last week about Haggai applies here as well. For any of you who weren't here with us last week, as a very brief summary, uh, this prophecy takes place almost 70 years 
after the people of God had been sent into exile in Babylon. And as had been foretold by the prophet Jeremiah, after 70 years of exile, uh, the people of God began to return to their homes in order to rebuild their lives of faith as the people of God. And they were rebuilding the temple. Uh, they were reestablishing their <clears throat> habits and patterns of worship. They were rebuilding their, the holy city of Jerusalem. So the, the punishment that they had experienced for the ways in which they had broken God's covenant, uh, which was what all of the previous prophets leading up to this point had been warning them about, um, that was over. Their punishment was over. And this was a new season but with hope for the future, for what God would do for his people as they returned to him. And it is in light of that context that Zechariah is speaking to the people. Now, this prophecy is largely made up of a, of a series of visions that Zechariah received. And some of them are quite wild. Uh, these are images of, of colorful horses patrolling the earth and of horns casting down the nations and of flying scrolls and of women in baskets. And it's all very apocalyptic and, and end times-ish in nature. <clears throat> and, and though we're not going to look at every one of them, when you take a step back... And consider them as a whole. There is a common theme that runs throughout them all. And that common theme is captured and summarized really well in chapter 8, verses 13 through 15. Where we read, excuse me, where we read that the voice of the Lord said to his people, Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you when your forefathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So fear not. And so when you take a step back and look at the book of Zechariah from a distance, That really is the major message of this minor prophet. That the entire book is made up of visions and of prophecies and of promises of how God is going to bring good to Jerusalem. And how he will save Israel and how he will make her a blessing to all of the nations of the world. In fact, if we were to read through the book of Zechariah and mark all of the different occasions where God says that he is going to do something good for the Jewish people or for the city of Jerusalem, you would end up marking well over 50 different verses, literally a quarter of this book. Every third or fourth verse is some sort of of promise and prediction about God doing good to his people. And these promises are intended to fill the Jews with hope. Hope in God and make them fearless and strong as they rebuild their lives in him. One of the ways that God does this and the most profound way that he does this is by proclaiming the hope of the gospel in advance to his people. And that's the thread that's woven throughout this book that I want us to consider briefly this morning. This is really profound. Look at it with me. This book begins... With a call to return to the Lord. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 6, the prophet reminds the people that God had been angry with their fathers 
for their disobedience. And he calls this generation to respond to him differently than their forefathers had by returning to the Lord. This is the first part of the message of the gospel. That we have sinned against God and we deserve his judgment as a result. But the good news is that if we will repent and return to the Lord, that he offers us forgiveness for the wrongs that we have committed. This is how the book of Zechariah begins. But it's not just how Zechariah begins his ministry. It's how Jesus began his ministry also. The very first words that Jesus proclaimed in his public ministry, as recorded in Matthew chapter 4, was a call to repentance, to returning. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Just as God had promised to the people in Zechariah's day that if they returned to him, that he would return to them. So in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus invites everyone, everyone to turn from their old ways and to follow him. And he, he tells them that if they will do that, that he would share in life and ministry with them. I will make you fishers of men. It's as we were reminded last week that when we draw near to God, he is always eager and willing to draw near to us. And in the first couple of visions that Zechariah has, we see the reality of this promise. In the vision of the horses, and in the vision of the man with the measuring line, that the angel of the Lord gives gracious and comforting words and promises that the city of Jerusalem shall again overflow with prosperity and with comfort and shall be protected by the presence of the Lord being with them. If they will return to the Lord, He will draw near to them. In chapter 3, we see the effect of that returning and repentance. In the vision that Zechariah has of of Joshua, the, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and before Satan. Satan was accusing him, slandering and condemning Joshua in the presence of God. But in response to Satan's accusations, the Lord rebukes Satan. And defends Joshua as a brand who was plucked from the fire. As one who was in danger of being burned but was removed from the consuming fire. The Lord commanded that Joshua's filthy garments be removed and replaced with pure vestments. And then he describes what all of this means. Saying to Joshua, behold, look, I have taken your iniquity away from you. This is the forgiveness that we receive when we repent of our sins and when we return to the Lord. Satan's accusations against us are gone and they have no power over us anymore. Because our sins are gone and because our guilt is gone. What he had previously held against us is no more. This is what the Apostle John means when he says that if we will acknowledge our sins and repent of our sins... That God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He takes our filth and he makes us clean, pure, white as snow. This vision of God taking Joshua's stained and filthy clothes and replacing them with clean garments images for us how the Lord takes our sin-stained lives And makes them holy and pure and righteous in His sight. 
Just a few verses later in chapter 3, verse 9, God tells his people that he is not just going to make clean the high priest, who was a representative for all of the people, but that he was going to remove the iniquity of all of the land, of all of the people. He was going to do it in a single day. This is the point later made in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. That prior to this great act of God, sacrifices had to be repeated endlessly, day after day, year after year. But they were never able to, to make clean and to make perfect those who drew near for worship. Because it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But here, something different is happening. People were really made clean. Once and for all, on a single day. How's that going to happen? Chapter 9 tells them in the description of a king who is going to come. Righteous and having salvation, humble and riding on a donkey. He will save his people. And of course, this is foreshadowing Jesus. The only one who is righteous. The only one who can truly save. He entered into Jerusalem. Riding on a donkey to the shouts of the crowd crying Hosanna. Which is not only a shout of praise, but it is also a cry that means save us, bring salvation. And Jesus did just that. Chapter 12 of Zechariah describes the day, uh, describes the Lord giving that salvation. And in chapter 12, verse 10 and following, God says that I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns over an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This was fulfilled in our gospel reading this morning from John chapter 19, which recounted the death of Jesus with his side being pierced to assure that he had really died. It was the death of Jesus that brought life to the world and salvation to sinners. This is the fount mentioned in Zechariah chapter 13 that was opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and from their uncleanness. This gospel thread, it runs all throughout the book of Zechariah. And when we see Jesus alluded to again and again and again in this prophecy as the promised king, as the branch, as the fount, as the good shepherd, as the true high priest, as the one who stands next to the Lord, as the coming Messiah, all of these are predictions of Jesus. And what Zechariah is telling us is that he, Jesus, he is the reason that we can return to God and be accepted. That he is the reason why we can stand before Satan and not be accused and condemned. That he is the reason why our filthy garments can be replaced with clean ones. That he is the reason why God is no longer angry with us as he was with our forefathers for breaking his covenant. Jesus is the reason why God has purposed to do good to his people. And he is the reason why. As Zechariah chapter 14 says, that a day is coming when the nations will be gathered in Jerusalem, when living waters shall flow from the city of God, and when the Lord will be king over all of the earth. 
This gospel thread of hope that we have in Jesus, it weaves its way all throughout the book of Zechariah. And this is the primary way in which God has purposed to do good to his people. It's through the life, death, and resurrection of his promised Messiah, Jesus. And this prophetic message, it has a profound impact on the lives of the Jewish people. It is what allowed them to heed the exhortation to not fear and to be strong in their efforts as they sought to rebuild their lives of faith. We see this in the book of Ezra, where where we are told that the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. This word helped them. It strengthened them. It caused them to prosper. It allowed them to hold on to hope throughout the years as they waited for the promises of God and for God's good purposes towards them to come to pass. It helped them. And it should help us also. Because while it's true that these promises were given very specifically to the Jewish people, and we largely are not Jewish, yet still... What we heard from our New Testament reading from Ephesians this morning is that part of the mystery of Christ is that the Gentiles can become fellow heirs with the Jews, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promises of God's grace. And what that means is that in Christ, when we believe in Him and place our faith and our trust in Him, That all of the promises that God gives to His people in the Old Testament become true for the church as well. As a result, when God promises that He purposes to do good to His people in Zechariah, it means that in Christ, God has purposed to do good to you also. Do you believe that that is true? That God has purposed in absolutely everything that you will ever experience to do good for you? Do you believe that? If we go back to the promise where God purposes to do good to His people in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 14, it's profound to consider. Because what... He says is that previously, before the people's sin had been dealt with, he had purposed to bring disaster and he would not relent. He would not leave the guilty unpunished. He was determined to do right, do justice. But now, because of Jesus, instead he has purposed to do good. And the implication is the same. That he will not relent. God will not relent in purposing to do good for you. What God purposes to do, it will come to pass. And this has profound impact on every area of our lives. What it means is that in all of the weakness... Of, of, of your own flesh, in your shortcomings, in your character flaws, 
in the sin that you commit, whether it's intentional or unintentional, in all of the internal mess that our lives often are, as you bring those things to Him, as you return to the Lord and present yourself before Him with those things, He will end up doing good for you through all of it. He will redeem and bring goodness out of the brokenness of our lives. It means that when you walk through the trials of life, the sorrows and the hardships and the brokenness and the disappointment, all of the things that are external to you and that are hard and that are the realities of living in a broken and a fallen world, even through those, when we come, return to the Lord with them, present them before God, He will end up doing good in your life despite those things and even through those things. He will redeem and bring goodness out of the brokenness of our world. And if that is true, if that is really true, could anything give more strength or more fearlessness to you for for building a life of faith than this good news? That God is going to take even the hardest, the worst, the most broken parts of our lives and Make them beautiful in the end? If that is true, then like the elders of the Jews that built and prospered through the prophesying of Zechariah, we should as well. And the reason that we know that this is true, the reason that we know that God's promises and His purposes for good for us are true, is because so much of this prophecy has already come to pass. So many of these promises have already been fulfilled. The promise of a coming king, righteous and bringing salvation, humble and riding on a donkey, it has happened. The prediction that he would be betrayed, it has happened. The prophecy that the price for his betrayal would be 30 pieces of silver has happened. The foretelling of the Messiah's hands and feet being pierced, it has happened. The prediction that the soldiers would pierce his side, it has happened. All of these events were predicted more than 500 years before they came to pass. But in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, they all came true. As John said in his gospel reading this morning where he recounted the piercing of Jesus' side. He said these things happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And he said he witnessed these things and recorded them so that you might also believe. Part of the purpose of the prophecies of Scripture is so that we can have assurance that God's words are true. Just like we discussed with the kids earlier this morning. If there were predictions that were made that never came true, we wouldn't believe the one who made the predictions at all. We wouldn't believe anything else that they said. But if the prophecies are made and then they actually come to pass, it means that the one who made the predictions has control over history in order to make things come to pass. And hence, whatever he says can be trusted and depended upon. So if the Lord has been faithful to make all of these other prophecies come to pass, we can make certain, we can rest assured that all of the other promises He make 
will come true as well. And that includes His promise to purpose good for you. Brothers and sisters, the fulfilled prophecies of Zechariah remind us that we can have assurance of God's promises for our lives. And that ought to help us to be strong and to be unafraid no matter what we face in this life. Because we can know with all confidence that the Lord is with us and that He has purposed to do good. And so let us, like the elders in Zechariah's day, build and prosper our lives of faith, being strengthened by the prophesying of Zechariah for God's glory and for our good. Amen.